and then I think it was three weeks, three or four weeks in, I'm literally losing my mind at home and sweating and stressing, panicking because I don't have one purchase order yet. We haven't got a single single purchase order. We haven't had one yet. Now I know, and, and I should have known this then. It was just the panic of um, startup, right? The panic of right, this is our own thing. We are the epicenter of success or failure. It's up to us to either make it or break it here. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Aaron Bailey, CISO and co-founder at The Missing Link. As a born tinkerer and technical problem solver, Aaron worked his way up into a very comfortable, high-level corporate cybersecurity position. And then he quit and chose to go into business for himself. Today, he levels with us on what it takes to be your own boss and explains the challenges he faced when transitioning from corporate leader to co-founder. So you're a CISO, now what? Aspiring to be in leadership is one thing, but staying in that role forever is another. So what's the financial implications of leaving a corporate position and starting fresh in your own business? If you're taking that leap, how important is equity? And should bravery be a required component of cybersecurity career success? Okay, Aaron, for the uninitiated, if you would, please tell us about yourself. Who are you? Hi, Stephen. How are you? Yeah, my name's Aaron Bailey. I'm the CISO and one of the co-founders at The Missing Link. The Missing Link's a consultancy that work in IT and cloud, cybersecurity, and more recently, automation as well. Now, how long have you been with The Missing Link? We're coming up on, yeah, so September 2013. Coming up on, I think it's about nine years now. Is there some sort of big event, maybe at 10 years, do you get like a jacket? Yeah, maybe a coffee mug, something like that. Maybe a special gamer's chair or something at my desk. That'd be nice. So one of the things I I was hoping to kind of get into just for the the theme of this entire show, I mean, we're going to go on a journey and learn about more about who you are and how you got your start. But for the listener in particular, there's this sort of giant question that every security leader faces, every CISO faces. And that is, what do you do when you're done being a CISO? And, and maybe you're never done. Maybe that's the answer. But there's other avenues. There's certainly advisory work. There's certainly a re- retirement like charity type work, of course. But many of them think about, flirt with, going to a startup, maybe doing their own thing. And you're the guy to have that conversation with. So before we get there, though, how did you get your start way before The Missing Link? Way before. Depends how far back before you want to go. But I've always been a bit of a techie, a bit of a tinkerer. I think my parents put me into a, I guess you could call it a programming course when I was eight. I think it was Dr. Logo, things like that, Forward 100, RT90, that sort of stuff. I got my first computer, which was, I won't say the specs because that'll sound too geeky, but really old computer when I was maybe 11, something like that. DOS 3.3, I remember that, reading the manual cover to cover because my older brother was sending me games that wouldn't work due to memory and storage limits, that sort of thing. So sort of tinkering with that. Um, it was in the days of modems. So I'll tell everyone I'm 42, but I'll sound probably older than that because it was kind of before the internet had pitches, really. So I was using modems. I was dialing up to bulletin boards and playing MUDs or online games, which are text-based, getting into things like in the early days, like the Anarchist's Cookbook, which is a whole bunch of nefarious things, but also how you know about hacking and freaking and all those sorts of things. And really, it was just a puzzle that was continuously you know, there to solve and almost never ending. So that's kind of how I got started in computers in general. My first uh, official job, I guess, was with a company called John Mag's Computers. So three stores in Sydney fairly small computer shop. I was doing PC repairs. I think I was about 17 then. I guess my first corporate job was with a company called Comtech in Australia. At the time, this was maybe 96 or something like that. They were the largest, I guess, integrator in the country. I think they had probably, well, when I joined them, they maybe had 200 staff. Three or four years later, they sold to Dimension Data for something like over a billion dollars. I think by then they had 1,200 staff or 2,000 staff or something like that. So when I started there, I think I was a security technician level one, basically the most junior title they had in, this, in the cybersecurity division. Well, it wasn't called cyber then. 
I was doing things like firewall audits. I was upgrading checkpoint firewalls on Sun Solaris systems, patching Solaris, uh, all that sort of stuff. So really came in as a, I guess, an entry, entry level techie and sort of built my way up from there. So in that era, I know there was a point in time where you were going to go into service. That didn't work out. You were applying for many jobs. You, you know, you kind of told me you phoned your father and you were sort of upset at what life had dealt you at that point. And I believe the story is, you know, you went in, you, you didn't get a job, yet another job and something about memorizing a manual. Tell us that story. Yeah, so that was, uh, so I'd finished high school. My dad definitely wanted me to go to university. I didn't. I was done with school and wanted to get into the world. Mum, as the peacekeeper, said, why don't you have a gap year? Um, so school in Melbourne at that time, living with my parents in Melbourne. Have a gap year. You know, apply to unis, get into uni, please your father. Then have a gap year, go and get a job, go out into the world. And then, and then we're doing both, right? We're keeping everyone happy. I thought that was a good idea. So I went to Sydney and I was literally just trying to get a job anywhere. I was, I was 17, so I was too young just to sort of get a bar job or anything like that. But cafes, sandwich shops, pizza shops, you name it, just anything that earned a few bucks an hour kind of thing. Obviously, I, I was going into electrical stores and technical computer stores and whatnot. I literally had, I don't know, 100 or more resumes printed out that I was handing them out in paper. And I literally walked from, I walked probably like three or four suburbs through Sydney down this long road towards the city. The last one was John Mag's computers that I mentioned. I was pretty good at building computers and troubleshooting, you know, I guess memory issues and disk and software and operating system stuff, but I hadn't done a whole lot of networking. And they were looking for a network engineer at the time. And so I said, oh, I can do that. And they're like, no, we need experience. And that was the call that you mentioned to my dad from the payphone, telling him that I was, I was done, I was fed up. I'd spent eight hours walking, you know, pounding the pavement. I'd handed out all my resumes and everyone said no. And he said, no, 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 tell them you'll memorize a manual and they should quiz you on Monday. This was a Friday. So I went and did that and gave the challenge and they gave me a Novell Netware 3.1, I think it was, 3 something, Novell Netware manual and said, okay, fine, we'll interview you on Monday. Here's a manual. So I went and read as much of that and memorized as much of that as I could, came back for the interview on Monday and I got all the questions right except one. And when I was challenged by the network manager there about that, that question. I said, no, I'm pretty sure that's the right answer. And I told him the page number that the answer was on. So you, you point that out and then what happens? So they took me on. Yeah, they gave me, they gave me the job. As it turned out, there wasn't a whole lot of networking in the job. That was, I guess they were trying to grow into a new area. So really the day-to-day -day job was more PC repair. I mean, they sold PCs, they built PCs that, you know, they pay service, service fees for, to fix stuff for people you know, printers, printer cartridges, all that sort of stuff. So there was a little bit of networking, but when I say that, it was like setting up, it was, it was even, you know, RJ45, crimping your own cables, literally stripping them and doing the 568A, 568B wiring scheme of the colors and all that. So literally cutting cables, running them, connecting up networks and getting them working. There was a little bit of that for sure, but I guess I learned the most about networking from, so while I was working there, they had this, I guess, partnership with a guy called Rod Duckworth, actually. He's probably the one who taught me the most about networking face-to-face. -face. He worked for a company called, well, it was his own business. So he was an entrepreneur. His office was in his backyard at the time in a, that he built out the back. And he really went back to basics in the OSI model and packet headers and how they work and all the cabling standards and got us to make cabling cables. And so I learned more from Rod Duckworth for sure old days of using things like Ethereal, which later became Wireshark and looking at exactly that information. Yeah. And you were talking about Cat5 before. You didn't have to worry about the twists so much later on when you get into 6 and that kind of thing, right? Yeah, it's an interesting start. Um, do you remember, it's kind of a rude question, but it's long ago. It's not really rude anymore. Like, you got this job. So you were thinking about going and working at a cafe, trying to get anything, which paid some amount of money, whatever that was. But what was the difference in this job? Like I can remember what every dollar amount, every job I ever had. Do you remember what this was, what you were getting paid and how do you feel about that amount? The weird thing I remember about that was that they, um, so the, John Maggs was the father and he had three sons, right? So Jared Maggs, 
was one of those sons that was the general manager at the shop that I worked at in Sydney CBD. And I remember when we were talking about salary, he would say the word clear. I'll pay you this much clear. And what he meant was after tax in your pocket, which is quite interesting now because when you're hiring people, they just worry about what they get in the bank. But as a business, you pay payroll tax and superannuation and pension funds and all these things. And so a cost of a person or a business, I realize now, is 1.5 to two times what they think they get. And that's even before you worry about tax. But yeah, I remember him saying 250 clear, $250 clear per week was my starting. $250 after tax per week was uh, what I started on at 17. I think by the time I, I think I was at an era a year-ish maybe. And then I went off and started my own little small business for a while. I think by the end I was at something like, I think it was double that. I think it was 500 a week clear, which was pretty good for someone 17, 18 years old, I reckon at that time. Oh yeah. Yeah, because you and I are about the same age, and that's at that point, you know, you're probably compared to your peers, probably relatively rich. Yeah, well, certainly other seventeen and eighteen year olds. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess if I if I extrapolate that out, two hundred fifty—that's a thousand a month. That's twelve thousand a year, but that's that's after tax. So call it twenty grand a year salary or something like that. Maybe I started on, and I got to something like forty or fifty grand a year within a year by proving myself and learning more about networking and those, those sorts of things. So was there any lesson learned or is there anything you remember going through that process that you hold on to today when you're interviewing maybe a junior version of you, you know, looking for a job? Is there anything that hangs in your mind that affects or maybe changes the way you ask questions or Maybe the consideration you give a candidate that's maybe not fully qualified, does any of that hang on differently in your mind? Is what, what gets applied today? Yeah, I guess in theme, yes. I'm, I mean, I'm not taking direct lessons from that and converting them into interview questions and whatnot. But there's uh, obviously I'm very technical. I just love understanding how stuff ticks, but not everyone is. And, and I don't think you need to be hardcore techie for every role. I was actually reading an article by a Sizo here in Australia called Kevin Shaw recently about life after Sizo. And he was talking about, you know, he used to think that there was two types of people, technical and non-technical. <laughs> but both have value. Right? There's a lot of different paths, you know, security awareness training, compliance, all sorts of things that don't necessarily need you to know how to use Wireshark and packet headers and all that sort of stuff. But because I'm technical and certainly some roles when you're hiring an engineer or a pen tester or a consultant or something, they obviously need to know the devil in the detail and how it works. And so I think the three things I'm looking for in an interviewer, passion, intelligence, and determination, effectively. Like, do they have a passion about the topic? And you can tell that by how someone just talks about it. Intelligence is a bit hard to judge, but you can hopefully get that by some of the quippy answers. And then, you know, perseverance, determination, are they going to drive themselves together? I mean, one of the technical questions I do ask in a um, interview and this might be giving it away but that's fine is explain in as much detail as you can what happens when I open a browser and type in www.google.com and hit enter so there is no perfect well there is theoretically a perfect answer to that it might take an hour to give the answer but really it's browser it's web it's the internet it's OSI model it's DNS it's ARP RAP routing, it's TCP, it's HTTP, it's SSL, you know what I mean? It, it, it's what proxy settings are in your browser, explicit, transparent. I mean, you can go on and on and on. But 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 however much they give on that, and then I go, keep going, what about this? Keep going, what about that? That one simple question gives me a fair bit of understanding about their understanding of how the internet works in my own. Absolutely. If they've ever had to mess around with their own local browser cache of uh, or DN DNS cache and all, I mean, it, there's a lot of stuff that happens. And typically, the more broken the environment is you've had to support, the better you are at answering this question. Well, and the more components. And it's like, you know, service desk people will know bits about that answer, um, about the operating system, the browser, and as you said, all those settings. Networking people will know different bits about the answer. If you've ever had to design, build, deploy a proxy server, you know, whatever that might be, Cisco, Bluecoat, or you know, new ones today, Netscape, Zscaler, whatever. You know about GRE tunnels, you know about authentication. 
and how that works and more about categorization of websites. I mean, it, it, it really is a bit of a bottomless question. That's kind of the point because <laughs> you just get an idea of their experience and what they've had to build, design, troubleshoot, or fix in the past. I like that a lot. And the other one that we used to ask in my prior life is, how does a machine become infected with malware? Like specifically, like not, I'm not talking about clicking on links. I'm talking specifically about how does that happen, right? And see what somebody has to say. And sometimes you get amazing answers and sometimes the answer is abysmal. I would say 50-50. I think you'll learn a lot. You'll learn a lot from kind of the caliber of the individual. And But I guess, you know, that's your early point of the, what did I learn then? The OSI model. I mean, it's the, the core of, to me, understanding how the internet works is really understanding the OSI model, right from making cables and testing them with cable testers right up to, as you said, Wireshark and understanding what's going on at those different layers. I mean, another question we ask, which is really sounds super simple, is what, what address do you find at layer two? Such a simple question. Not 100% of the people you interview get that right. Kind of, well, sort of a layer up, even just how can you tell, get a rough idea of the operating system without signing into the system? Like how do you, you can actually do it with an ICMP request, right? And so depending on the TTL, the packet that's given, right? And you, you can begin to form an idea. And so many people, I don't know, maybe they're not old enough or maybe they don't care, I don't know. But that's, that's another one that most get wrong. And I was going to ask, actually, I was taking it a way, so I was going 50,000 feet in the air saying, what did you learn as a hiring manager now? Not that you learned the OSI model. So that's the wrong answer based on what I was asking is like, what did you learn? Like looking at the guy that knocks or the gal who knocks at your door that wants a job that you're like, okay, how do I evaluate? Now, you kind of answered that passion, intelligence, determination. Well, perseverance, perseverance and determination, right? Someone who's going to take it, not expect to be given it quite simply, right? So, and that's hard to judge. It really is hard to judge, especially if you're just having a one hour conversation in, in an interview is like, is this a person who's going to RTFM, who's going to Google stuff, who's going to go figure it out, who's going to find a way and smash through barriers and, and get it done? Or is this a person that will expect uh, two hours a day of mentoring, a career, a progression plan that requires five day boot camp once a month of paid training constantly i mean all of that is fine as well and we certainly throw money at training in our, at our staff but sometimes solving a puzzle i mean sometimes <laughs> there's bugs in everything so knowing the principles and knowing the manuals in a perfect lab environment is one thing but when you're actually doing something i mean you know whether you're hacking something or attacking something or building something it may not function as expected and quite often it doesn't and so you've got to have that grit to just get through it and figure it out and that, yeah, that's definitely something I look out for is who's going to smash down barriers for themselves, who's going to demand a promotion from me, but then earn it because they've gone and solved puzzles that others haven't or pleased clients that others haven't or done a vendor's deployment for the first one in the company or the country. I mean, we've had plenty of firsts. Uh, bravery in general as a trait right, is you know, we've had plenty of firsts. We we had a guy called Elad Shamir who found a zero day in Microsoft and the way Active Directory works. He wrote a white paper about wagging the dog, which was presented at DEF CON and Black Hat and taught in front of a class of like 50 hackers at DEF CON. We designed and deployed the first Microsoft Active Directory Red Forest design in Australia, at least, that was done outside of Microsoft Consulting themselves. We connected the first energy grid into the internet using a what's called the Secure Remote Access Protocol, which was basically a white paper published on the Onset website, which I thought was crazy, a blueprint of how to do it securely, like incredibly securely, so that uh, OT systems can be repaired and updated and maintained remotely without someone you know, physically come on site. We've got, like time and time again, we've got stories of firsts, and, and you know we were the first company in Australia to launch the Australian Signals Directorate's uh, top four as a service, now the Essential Aid as a service. So, you know, that's the thing I guess I value and look out for is yeah, the bravery to try new things and to persevere and get through it, even when there isn't a perfect course or a manual telling you how to do it. You said something there that I want to make sure we cover just for the benefit of the listener that might not be tuned in to the Essential Eight. I am aware, and actually I actually had a chance last time I was out to meet with 
representatives of the signals directorate and in a subsequent conversation got to cover what has now become the essential eight uh, which i thought they were going to expand actually but give a high level overview of what that is for the listeners that are in other places in the world that may not have had an introduction to it it's a lot of countries so in the uk the ncsc the national Cybersecurity Center has their cyber essentials. In Australia, we have the ACSC, the Australian Cybersecurity Center. It's called the Essential Eight, but it's actually part <laughs> long-winded. It's called the Top Mitigation Strategies for Targeted Cyber Intrusions or something like that. Mouthful is the name of the list. There's actually 37 in the list, I think. But they talk about the Essential Eight, and they categorize the recommendations of what you should do on your network or your environment to make to harden yourself, basically, and make yourself more resilient to uh, to attack and, and cyber issues. It's patch and vulnerability management, it's MFA, it's backups, it's application whitelisting, and it's um, restrict admin privileges or privilege access management. So really, it's just constant. And, and, you know, for example, patching at level three is critical within 48 hours as well. So it's quite rigorous patching. It's not once a month patching. So to do it properly, you've got to have, you've got to embrace automation. You've got to stitch tools together and they have to integrate and you have to embrace automation to do it properly. and, and and really hit level three, there's three levels of maturity. Really, it's the principle of least privilege, positive security model, and patch the shit out of everything always. <laughs> that's that's the gist of it. I like the fact that it's that there's a maturity model that goes along with it. I think that makes a, a ton of sense. My only beef that I have with it, uh, or at least had with it, and I haven't looked at it recently, and when I say recently, probably the last year, is that there was essential things to do across the board, all well and good. agree with all of it. But there was no overarching tie that would bind all of it together in some sort of analytic or response capability. Meaning you can do all these things and they all are kind of siloed. There's nothing that's sort of bringing them all together, which was feedback I gave. Isn't that a great uh, idea for a managed service provider who can do it all as a service then for you? It's a, a good idea for one, for sure. But I get what you mean. Like these tools and these controls and these processes are there. What's governing them? What's monitoring them? Where are all the logs and the alerts going? And, and where is that centralizing and aggregating? And who's watching it? And, yeah, I get it. I get it. And as I said, there, there are other, you know, there's 37 of them. And it's not only do the essential eight and you're all good and you don't need to do anything else and you don't even need a firewall and you don't even need a SEG or a SWIG or a you know, web or email or any of that stuff. Of course you need that stuff. But some, you know, we do a lot of pen testing. We always get domain admin. I think we have a hundred percent success rate of domain admin for internal pen tests. I think we've even got it on some externals and the, the consultants, we have 20, 22 OSCP certified consultants now. They kind of compete about not just getting DA, but how quickly and how many, it's usually on the first day and then how many hours or minutes. I think we had one story about a chap that went to a client site, was there a little bit early, sitting in reception and told the receptionist that he was there to see the SISO or security manager and, and to do a pet test, and et cetera, while he was waiting to be picked up, actually got DA via their Wi-Fi from the reception before it had been collected. So it always, it always happens, right? But I, I remember this one client probably six years ago now that really gave us a run for our money and said, no, 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 we don't need a pen test. We're good. And we've heard that before. And so we pushed, they happened to be in the legal sector. So I decided to do a no win, no fee statement of work. So here's a proposal. You sign it and give us a purchase order for the work. But if we don't get these things, and I was careful not to just make it domain admin, it was things like remote code, like execute an RCE, remote code execution, execute a privilege escalation, whatever that might be. So critical findings, right? One of which could be a path to DA. If we don't get these, you don't pay. If we do, you do. And they, you know, they put our testers in a room, they made their laptops go on a screen, they watched everything they were doing, their ops team were whack-a-moling and fixing things as they were discovering. It was tough. And I remember one of our um, seniors at the time called, called uh, my business partner Sam and I at the time, complaining because it was like day three and they hadn't popped on. And they're like, this is, this is bullshit. This is so tough. They did. I think they got them on day four. But the, the gist of what made it so, I mean, they had NAC, first of all. They did have to whitelist the NAC address because NAC, uh, NAC was getting in the way from even just getting a decent IP and path to the network. But once they whitelisted the MAC, it was still tough because they were probably the most mature ASD essential aid company we'd seen in Australia at that point in time. 
there was not a single patch missing in the environment for like a week old, more than a week old. And this is a law firm. Usually they are an absolute disaster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, respect, respect to this, uh, won't call them out, obviously, but the size of a security manager know if they knew this, will know who they are. They'll probably know the story. But, uh, you know, it was respect. I think there was a lot of mutual respect from that project. They really didn't think we'd get in, and we did. And it was frustrating for our testers. And they learned a lot, and they went and tuned themselves up even more. But we, we had a lot of respect for them. Okay, wow, if you really follow this blueprint, you do it rigorously. Now, bear in mind, they probably had twice the headcount budget of most other law firms their size as well. So that was a, and, and, it, and it's, you know, the partners in that law firm were really embracing and believing in cybersecurity and empowering their size with money, right? With money for controls, money for headcount to do it properly. But then obviously the, you know, the team in place and the leader, an attitude of continuous improvement. Like literally every time they had a pen test report done, they did everything within a month or two. They followed all the recommendations and they did not stop until they ticked everything off and had it retested and confirmed it was done, which is, how it should be done, but unfortunately, it's very rare. It's very rare. and the, But it sounds like they also had cooperation, which meant most organizations, if they don't prioritize this kind of work, they're not going to get the cooperation to get it done, even if they have the budget to make it happen, because it's just not a priority, at least in my, in my experience. But I'm amazed to hear that this was a law firm, because again, not trying to disrespect law firms, but usually they're just raging dumpster fires, truthfully. And getting caught in the middle of if there's an M&A that involves something that a nation state might be involved in, they're going to get absolutely napalmed. There's all sorts of sensitive data there for sure. Yeah. Well, we work with, I think, something like maybe 40% now of the top 20 law firms in Australia. So at least in our part of the world, hopefully the legal profession's a little bit better now than before we met them. So you mentioned him earlier. You mentioned Sam. I want you to take us back because something I said when we started the show, which is, okay, many of the listeners are technicians. Many of the listeners are leading teams now in a managerial role. Many of them are CISOs. Some of them are wondering, what do I do next? And the conversation with you today, I think, can illuminate an interesting one. but. You had a great job. You were probably had all you wanted, probably more than you wanted, frankly. And you teed it up for me in an earlier chat where Sam's your guy. Sam's like, hey, I'm leaving. And ultimately, the conversation flips in a really weird way. And you decide to go with him. Now, this is that jump into what does the CISO do later? And it's kind of become a founder. So Pick up the story there if you would. So Sam's getting ready to bounce. Decisions are to be made. How did that go down in that moment when he's getting ready to leave and then you decided to leave? So we're not yet, we've not started the company yet, but we're thinking about making a move. Talk to us about that. Yeah, sure. So I mean, I was working with Sam at the time. We're longtime mates. We've known each other for a long, long time. I think we met each other initially when we were both about 18, 19, something like that. So what this would have been 2013, around that time. And so he came to me to resign, part mate, part boss, uh, sort of two hats wearing. So, of course, same question, where are you going and what are you doing? I want to make sure you're doing the right thing. He said, I'm going to go start a cybersecurity business with The Missing Link. And I was like, who are they? I didn't really know about them at the time. I was working at Dimension Data. We were both working at Dimension Data. After that, acquired by NTT. And... So he said, oh, Alex and Daniel run and own the missing link. You should meet them. They're great guys. Let's go do, you know, let's go do this together. Why don't you come with me? And I was like, no, no, you're crazy. That sounds risky. I was the security practice manager at the time for New South Wales. So I think I was leading a team of 34 or thereabouts. And we were maybe sort of 50 million revenue for our portion of cyber for Dimension Data at the time in Australia. I think I'd, I'd just recently won an award. I was inducted into the Technical Hall of Fame with Dimension Data. I, you know, I, I could see a career path to, to GM or you know, head of cyber for the country and, and whatever. It's, you know, it's a big company. There's a lot of room to sort of move and grow and move around, maybe overseas, different countries. So a lot of opportunity. And so a lot to run away from or leave. And we went and had a beer and had a chat about it. And he's like, look, just promise me that you'll meet with them and, and, and we can talk about it. And so I did, I promised, and we went and talked about it. There was a lot of, 
you know, discussing with my wife and, and stress about the whole thing. It was pretty positive and it looked like it was going to happen. But I, I remember a chat with my wife where I was like humming and ahhing and on the fence. And she goes, what are you doing? You're not like this. You're braver than this. Man up and get on with it, would you? Or something to that effect, like a verbal slap in the face. And I was like, okay, I love it. Let's go. And so we did. And yeah, I mean, it's been a lot of hard work, but I, I'm loving it. And we've from the Missing Link itself had a client base, had an infrastructure division, was often racing. I mean, I think it was established in 97. So it had an office, it had a logo, it had a website and all the things like it was startup without for Sam and I specifically, without having to worry about all of that, the base systems, the all of that, the marketing, the website and all that. It was literally just, okay, go build a cybersecurity business. Off you go. So from the two of us in tail end of 2013, we've grown to 80 plus cybersecurity pros and almost 50 million revenue ourselves for the cyber division. So it's been a wild ride. It's very rewarding. Very scary and nerve wracking as well, right? It's not all smooth riding. I remember three weeks in or something. I think it was only three weeks. So I just went beast mode and went, right, this this is this be easy. I know cyber. I've worked for Dimension Data. I know people. People know me. Let's go. And then no one would give me a meeting. And then I'm not sending out many proposals or quotes. And then I think it was three weeks, three or four weeks in, I'm literally losing my mind at home and sweating and stressing panicking because I don't have one purchase order yet. We haven't got a single single purchase order. We haven't had one yet. And my wife again gave me a slap around the head and said, it's been three weeks, you idiot. Just keep coming. You're fine. Why wouldn't, I mean, it, it eventually obviously picked up, but why wouldn't people give you a meeting or was it, what, what was the issue? Was there an issue? Now I look back and go, like, it, even now a lot of people know who we are and we're a well-respected brand. You, you don't just book a meeting with somebody next week. Their calendar's full. So first of all, like, like, it just takes time to send an email, make a phone call, and ask for something and get it. You can't expect someone to be doing nothing and, and available for you tomorrow. Right? So first of all, I think that there's just a bit of lag there. Second of all, you don't quote something that someone buys tomorrow either, usually. Now I know. And, and I should have known this then. It was just the panic of um, startup, right? The panic of, right, this is our own thing. We are the epicenter of success or failure here. It's up to us to either make it or break it here. It was, it was more the stress and the panic. I wasn't thinking rationally, <laughs> obviously, because, it, yeah, it just takes time to book in a meeting. You need notice and talk about something. You might have five or ten meetings talking about something before they go, okay, I like the sound of that. Let's do a pen test with you. Sam Marshall, uh, the missing link, whatever it might be. Okay, yeah, we trust you enough. Okay, send me a proposal. All right, I might buy it in a month's time. And then I don't need you to kick off for another month after that. You know, that's just how things work. So the missing link existed. The company existed. There was partners involved, founders involved. What there wasn't was a cyber practice. And the reason why I'm calling this out is, again, this may frame up a mode of thinking for the listener who may one day want to partner up with a similar organization, you know, that has a successful technical business, but doesn't have maybe a cybersecurity arm. And so that's what yourself and Sam brought in. And so it was all on your shoulders. It was either going to work or not work, but there was at least a back office. As you said, there was a website and a, and a billing system and that kind of thing. Is that mostly accurate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and clients as well, right? And brand awareness. So while I didn't necessarily know much about the missing lines of Dimension Data because we were dealing with bigger clients, we were competing against, you know, I guess the big four consultancies, you know, Telstra, the biggest telco in the country and all sorts of things, they had a client base. They had, you know, there were clients from the missing link that we were able to talk to. Some of them were smaller clients that were, you know, 500,000 seats and below that, Weren't, you know, that may not have had a size, for example. They didn't necessarily have their own size in the client base. So, you know, we certainly started trying to aim for companies that had a security manager or a size, at least one dedicated person in that business whose focus was cybersecurity. So we could try to, uh, I guess, talk with them and work with them. Now, just to be clear, the Missing Link had done some level of security before we joined, like things like firewalls and antivirus and things like that and email gateways and, and 
bits and bobs. I just, I believe they didn't have anyone with security in their title before we joined. So no dedicated cyber professionals at the time. Things get going. Before things got going, though, you made the decision to move on. I made the assumption when you were telling me parts of this story before that you had maybe had a high level of comfort and that kind of maybe some planning had gone into this. But it, it sounds like maybe as a bit of inspiration for the listener that you just went and did it. You didn't have maybe the savings that you wanted to have. You didn't have the like you just you just went. And that I think, again, for the listener of the show, like that's an important thing, I think, to know or at least that that perspective. Just jump out of the plane. Yeah. Uh, look, so there was planning. It wasn't literally a be a coaster kind of business plan necessarily. So I love Excel. I'll always do a spreadsheet for everything in life uh, in general and work. But yeah, we, we built a forecast. We built a PL forecast before we committed. We mapped out what the first financial year would look like. I think we set a target for a million revenue. I think we got to just shy of that. I want to say sort of 970K or thereabouts, which is kind of cool and amazing. So there was a lot of planning about the how, about the how and and where you know the opportunity and I think where where we thought it would go, but the time between first chat with Sam about hey should we do this to doing this was about seven weeks I think so and so that seven weeks is not really a lot of time to save money for a rainy day and yeah I mean we both took a pay cut quite a significant pay cut to go from dimension data into into startup mode because you know. There's no purchase orders. There's no, you know, you got to build it. So, how big? How big, like percentage wise? I want to say maybe 40%, 40 40 to 50% cut or something. For us personally, it was actually the opposite of savings. So, weirdly, we'd had a scenario at home that we were broken into. I think we were living in Edgecliff at the time. We got burgled while we weren't at home. Christmas. Christmas tree, Christmas presents, all torn open as we get home. Horrible, right? Clean that up. And then, so my wife was on edge and because of that. Don't know if it's the same burglars or another set of burglars, but they came back. So second time they came back, we were home and, and sleeping in, in, at the time. And I literally chased them out of the house and into the, the woods nearby, etc. So it was a bit crazy. And my wife got freaked out, understandably, and didn't want to be there anymore. So I want more security bars on the windows. I want a code on the gate and... I need to feel safe. So, okay, fine. Yes, no problem. And so we actually upgraded. I can't remember if it was before startup or just after startup, but at a time when we should have been tightening our belt, I was paying more in rent due to that life scenario, let's call it as well. So, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting, interesting time. Very motivating to get on the phones and talk to as many people in, in a day as you can possibly fit in. So I think that's something to, to chat a, l- a little bit about. So. Because I don't think most security people, most technical people, I think many of them have dreamt about being their own boss or maybe having their own company or some of them may have a side gig, but it's not, it's not what they eat off of, right? It's just some extra money. But there are skills that you had to have, had to develop, had to get better at because your role is today CISO and founder. And when you're a founder, you are responsible for a PNL sheet. You are responsible for doing a lot of client forward discussions, ultimately leading to sales in a way. What advice do you have for those that are flirting with the idea, wanting to be their own boss, thinking about being an entrepreneur, maybe wanting to follow the steps that Aaron has followed? And now they're thinking, well, how the hell do I do this? How do I play CISO, but also worry about, you know, getting these, you know, whatever it is, even quote sheets or whatever, sort of the business ops side of it. What advice do you have there? Yeah. So look, I got exposure to a P&L at Dimension Data. So I was there, I think I joined as a 2009, I reckon it was. I joined as an architect. My boss, the practice manager, then quit about six months later, and I went for the job and I got it. And so the, I was thrust into taking over a team. And part of that was a, a targeting system. So we had targets, people on bonuses and commission. I remember the target. I, th- I remember there being nine numbers, which was based around the P&L or our broken out 
team-based P&L for the security practice at the time of Dimension Data. So I think it was like three streams of revenue, tech, as in technology, as in product resale, PS, professional services, and then MS, managed services. So three streams, and then for each stream, three numbers, revenue, gross profit, and net profit. So there were nine targets, at least for me as the practice manager at the time. And we were given monthly a, a P&L. I don't think a balance sheet at the time, but a, a P&L, which was our contribution to the business, right? So they carved it out and coded stuff to our team and, and what we were doing. So I was, you know, I was sent this thing once a month. I had to read and understand. And I don't think I'd seen one before then. Um, I mean, I knew the concept of revenue and gross profit, perhaps. OPEX versus COGS, didn't have a clue, you know, all the different things. Why is annual leave costing me money when people aren't taking leave? Oh, because we're provisioning for it. So many things I had to get my head around. And really, I just did that because I wanted to understand those nine numbers, those targets, and conquer them, right? I wanted to get those numbers for myself and my own commission, but also for the team because we get those numbers and my whole team got paid more money, right? So that forced me to dive into the detail of how that worked. Unfortunately, so I had a lot of learning and appreciation for how P&L worked and how the money goes in at the top and flows through and all this stuff comes out and $100 goes in and sometimes you might have $3 come out the bottom. I got an appreciation for that, but I couldn't control it. I, hadn't, I had P&L responsibility, but zero control. For example, I, someone would resign and let's say that I'm light on architects or pre-sales people to actually do proposals or RFPs or tenders. Someone would resign in a different team and I'd want to take that headcount and that money and spend it on an architect. I'd want to not spend more money, spend the same amount of money, but on a different type of role. I might want to move a role. I couldn't do that. Everything was a request and rarely approved. There was a lot of rejections to a lot of the requests I put forward. And that was frustrating, right? I felt like I wanted to go somewhere. I wanted to do things, but I kept having people say no to me. Coming to The Missing Link, with uh, Alex and Daniel, obviously at the start, it was just the two of us. And then, oh, I think we need another salesperson. That was pretty easy. We got, we, I think Zoe Mafar joined us as our first salesperson. He's still with us today as our head of cybersecurity sales. And I remember, I can't remember how many months in it was. Let's call it six months in, seven months in maybe. I walked into Alex's office and said, I reckon we need a, an architect because I was kind of doing Sam and I were both doing multiple roles at that time. I don't, I, we need an architect. And I think Alex said to me, why don't you get two? And I just remember, I remember that moment where I sat there and went, don't know if I want to. Don't know if I need to. Because I had, because I'm now responsible for making sure there's a positive number at the bottom of that P&L every And do we really need to spend that much money right now? It was really interesting to just go from a, I can ask for what I want. I can have all the math and science and business case behind it. And sometimes I'll get a yes, but usually I'll get a no to why don't you double it from Alex? And that was a, it was a real light bulb moment of like, oh shit, with great power comes great responsibility. Like, I can, if, if Alex doesn't say no to me too much, then I can really screw this up, you know? So PL knowledge is one thing, but responsibility where you can make your own calls is, is a whole other scary level sometimes. I don't know if we covered this earlier, but. You mentioned Alex. It's Alex and Dan, I believe, are the original founders. So you're going into your partner's office, but founder of the larger company. And so now says, yeah, get two. Because to him, he's thinking, well, he, I'm just going to make, he's going to get two. He sees it working. It's starting to roll. And he's like, let's invest more. Let's go. And I, I can't actually remember if we did or didn't. I don't think we did, actually. I think we got one architect because, you know, we didn't want to, we want to try and, have a positive number at the bottom of that PL every quarter or year. Okay, give some advice if you would to maybe I want to talk equity for a second. And for those that are making a similar move, and, and I'm not going to get into your business on this question specifically, but I want your perspective if you would share to say, hey, like at some point you gotta trade your time and your knowledge for percentages of of ownership if you're wanting to make this. If this similar scenario were to exist, meaning you were gonna link up with an organization, you're gonna start a practice, maybe it's a security practice, maybe we've talked also the other one you're involved in is automation. But let's say you're going to join and do this and, and you're going to have to go through this journey that Aaron just discussed. A huge component of that is equity in the company. Percentages, how does it 
mature or vest? Is there a shelf? Is there limits? Can you, how do you participate? Do you buy in? Do you earn in? Give from your lens to the listener who's curious about this, just some high level advice or tips that are education on this topic that you'd share uh, to this global audience. Well, I'm still learning, to be fair, all the multiple ways to carve these things up. It's it's bizarre. So I think it's totally different when you're talking about equity or shareholding in something that doesn't exist yet versus something that does. It's massively different. And then it's you know size and scale of the organization. I know in Vendorland, for example, uh, quite often vested shares or stock options are a thing, or publicly listed companies in general, not just Vendorland. But obviously, when they're, you know, they're big organizations and they've been going for a while, they've had you know, series A, B, whatever rounds of investment, it can be part of a package of a lot of people, not necessarily just founders necessarily, right? Yeah, it, it's, it's tough. It's interesting. It's like, it feels bonkers sometimes talking and haggling and discussing percentages of something that doesn't exist, that hasn't happened yet. And I guess success once does not equal success every time again and again with the same group of people, same business, different geos. I mean, we've got a different experience right now expanding into the UK. Yeah, it's an interesting ride, but it's just like basically trying to learn as much as possible. There, There's things like voting rights. So, you know, different types of shares, there's different classes of shares. You know, you may be presented with something where someone else has already written a shareholder agreement and you're coming into it. My advice is get advice, right? Because these are legal documents. There's when we did our first one, we've actually rewritten our shareholders agreement during the course of the cyber division. It, it was a bit more, it was lighter, it was less pages, it was more of a gentleman's agreement and less legalese and we didn't each pay tens of thousands of dollars getting top lawyers to make it a hundred pages long and watertight and all that sort of thing. It's a lot more evolved nowadays, but you're going into business with somebody and we, we had a lot of trust between the four of us, Alex, Dan, and Sam and myself and so there's four directors in the business and we have various voting rights over various businesses and all that sort of stuff. It's not, it's not a simple scenario necessarily, but I, I mean, I'm glad to say I've been with, I've known Sam for a long time, but I've been with Alex and, and Dan for nine years almost now. We've never gone to a formal vote, as in we vote, we discuss, we have board meetings, we give our input and our decisions and we occasionally say the words, I vote this or I vote that. But we've never gone to an external vote. We've never had mediation. We've never had massive argument where it's a split scenario where one or two people really want to do the red one and the others want to do the blue one and we're completely split down the middle. We've had just conversations and discussions that go on beyond 10 minutes for sure. But we work really well as a team. I think the balance we have of sales and technical, the balance we have of bull versus bear is amazing. We got lucky, I think, as well. Like, yes, we sort of sorted out. It's like the biggest interview you're ever going to do, be that getting a job or finding someone for a job. It's the biggest interview you're ever going to do. And I can tell you that, you know, when I say we, we did it, you know, we, we decided and moved in seven weeks, there were hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of conversations in those seven weeks. It wasn't a, wasn't a one-hour interview. Does that answer your question? I guess you're looking for what is the system you... you at some point, there's a contract, right? So you need help with that contract. And really, you get, you get, you got to sniff out as best as you can who you're getting into business with. And you've got to trust them. Because I've seen some awful stories in the market of people messing with other people, screwing people over. It can go horribly wrong. I've seen people ousted from companies. You know, they're a director and a shareholder, and then they just get forcibly removed, voted out. And sometimes that's because of their own actions and they didn't deliver or do well or they weren't what the others thought. Sometimes it's just because of greed, hostility, and all sorts of other bad things as well. So it's not always golden and easy. And I think, you know, first and foremost, that's the people, the hearts and minds and the, and the people and the talent that you're going into business with. Lastly, but importantly, the legalese, right? The actual contract itself about who can do what and what decisions trigger other things and what the formulas are around actions or decisions and those sorts of things. So I ask the question simply because it is so difficult. There's so much. I mean, there's, there's entire volumes of books that go into this, this question and answer. So it's more of just, you know, you, you've been at this now nine years. 
the way you describe the working scenario seems extremely healthy. And so as many attributes that I can sort of extract, again, for the listener, this is a little bit of a different show for us, but it was, I, I love the topic. And I think that it's interesting just how in some ways, how deep you guys have gone, like the example that you just gave. And in other ways, you know, you did have many conversations over those seven weeks, but seven weeks is a very quick decision cycle in the scope of a career. So in some ways you're like, you know, in my perspective, it's like, let's do it. And the other is, you know, there's other areas of deep detail. So I find it all, all very fascinating. And I, and I also have to say, so we've been at this almost an hour and I, I, I say this, I've said it, I've had the great fortune of saying this several times, many times on the show, the great shows go by so quickly and we're almost at an hour here. I've got a long list of other questions for you, but we're not going to be able to get to to them. But we close on the same question each time. And pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO, I'll modify the question here. What does being a, a founder and a new CISO mean to you? A uh, new CISO. Look, I mean, I think cybersecurity is just becoming more prevalent. It, there's more board awareness, I think. CISOs should strive to have a seat at the board or have that direct line of communication with companies as much as they can, founder or not, right? Since so many companies and customers of ours where the CISO reports into the CIO sometimes, the CFO other times, or COO, but they're a report, they're not a peer. And I, and I think that needs to happen more and more. It's starting to happen. But really, I mean, for me, the thing that gives me the most joy is training up new CISOs. We've had... People come through our business that have started their own businesses off the back of working with us, not because of us, but, you know, hopefully at least in some part, what they've learned during their time with us. We've had um, some come through our business and, and now they're the head of a blue team at a listed company, the head of a red team at another listed company, those sorts of things. So to me, that is amazing when you know, you're working with people, you know, we just need to share more. We need to teach and learn and realize that you can't ever, it's too complicated. There's too much to cybersecurity. You're never going to learn it all. So you've got to keep learning, but you've got to share that as much as you can as well. So I think for me, that's what a, a new CISO is, is strive for the top, peers with the board where you can, teaching others around you and succession planning and training others. And Because we need CISOs in the world. Like we, there's not enough people, skills shortage, all of that. So we need to do our best to, to train those around us to be that next generation, I think. Excellent answer. Excellent perspective. Aaron, thank you so much for your time today. No problem. Thanks, Stephen. Appreciate it. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first. 